turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be concluding chapter 10 and covering the first verse of chapter 11. So our passage will be 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. In, in dangerous situations, in the life-threatening situations, it's important to know what to do. Simple enough. So if there is a fire in your house, you want to put it out. You may throw water on it. But then that, that causes us to think about the importance of context. Uh, in, in a crisis situation, it's important to know what to do and when to do it. So you wouldn't want to dump a bucket of water on an electrical fire in your house. The context determines what would be necessary in that particular situation. So it's not enough simply to know what to do, but you need to know when to apply that knowledge. Uh, It would be really simple for our lives, wouldn't it? And maybe for your jobs you have things like this, where if a certain situation or activity or event happens, you go to your manual, you go to this list, and it tells you what to do next. Uh, Just a simple guide, a troubleshooting guide maybe, you can find out what action to take. Really helpful. Well, you've probably had the experience, even on your cell phone these days, of having a telemarketer call you. Somehow they get, they get your numbers. They're out there. They're going to get your numbers. So we've all probably had this uh, experience that the telemarketer was ready for you when you said you weren't interested in their product. What, wasn't he ready for you? What's the main reason you're not interested, he asks, to which you reply, well, We don't really have enough money to buy it right now. We're on a fixed budget, fixed income. We can't really contribute money to that. And he was ready for that too, wasn't he? (laughs) See, no matter what you say, the telemarketer is ready for you. He has a response, and he is ready to say it. As soon as you give an answer, he's ready to respond. He just goes down his list of responses and sees how he's supposed to answer them. He's not really supposed to think really hard about what he's saying. He just hears the response, goes to the list, and responds back. He has the perfect answers all typed out for him and ready to go. And don't we sometimes wish that this is how the Christian life was for us? We encounter a certain challenge or situation. We encounter a certain problem. And we wish we could just go to the Bible like it's our troubleshooting manual. Just go to, oh, that's that's in chapter uh, 20, List number five, okay? Just go there, you see what action to take, and you'll, you'll be ready to go. Simple as that. You don't have to think that much about it. You would just have a ready-made script for any challenge that you may face. So whatever problem you have, just cut and paste each response. It'd be nice to not have to think about your problems, right? <laughs> about the challenges you face and what action you should take. But as any good learner knows... You don't gain wisdom and knowledge by simply jumping to the answers at the back of the book. You don't gain anything from it. You don't grow from it. You gain wisdom and knowledge by wrestling with the things that you don't understand. By sifting the problem over and over in your head, in your mind. Until eventually you come up with a proposed solution. You come up with some answer to the problem well this is more what the christian life is like and in our passage this morning paul does actually give a couple ready ready-made answers for the corinthians on how they should respond 
in their situations, they'd asked him questions about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so in these verses, he does give them a couple situations, and he tells them what they ought to do in those situations, what they can do in those situations. But he doesn't stop there because he actually gives the underlying principles which inform and motivate these actions. So in particular, he gives us two principles which should act as guides in any situation. Or maybe we could think of them as lenses through which to examine certain problems or situations. One lens is the glory of God. We can ask in each situation, what would bring honor to the name of my Lord? And another lens through which we can look at different situations is the good of others. What would be helpful for the people around me? What would be beneficial to them and profitable? What would build them up in the Lord as well? Our main theme from this passage is is this. Since we are followers of Christ, the guiding priorities of our actions must be the glory of God and the good of others. What characterizes Christ must characterize us. We belong to him and therefore we are coming We are becoming more like him. And and what was Jesus' life? What characterized his life? But this, the guiding principle of his life was love. It was love. Love for God and love for others. And therefore, what must guide our behavior is not merely what is convenient or comfortable or what even benefits us the most, what is desirable for us, but what gives glory to God. And what builds up others? What is good for others? It really sounds like the purpose statement of our church, doesn't it? Loving God, loving one another, and loving our world. Loving God's glory, loving God's people, and loving God's world. Let's look at our text and uh, walk through it together, and then I'll bring out some, some truths for our benefit. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to your people. Speak, O Lord, and give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand. And give us wills to obey. We know that all of this is by your grace. Please bless us richly by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Paul is concluding a larger section 
these last few chapters about rights and privileges. <clears throat> Remember, the, the specific situation he's dealing with now is meat sacrificed to idols, whether or not they can, they can eat it in the temples. Some were saying they're, they're free to do all kinds of things. Others were saying uh, that they, they couldn't eat it at all. They would have to abstain from this meat completely. Well, in verses 23 and 24, Paul uses the, the statement of the Corinthians, the, the truth that they are pushing. In other words, all things are lawful for us. He used using their statement, all things are lawful, to actually bring in a certain nuance to their understanding, to actually correct them. They're living as antinomians in some ways, as though the law has nothing to do with their lives, as though they could do anything and not worry about uh, what implications or consequences would come from it. We saw this actually before in chapter 6. Remember, he says something similar. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, here he changes it up a little bit, and he says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And he also says all things are lawful, but not all things build up. So the Corinthians went about deciding how to behave by asking the question, what can I do that is lawful? What, what is lawful? And then we can do that. And their conclusion, their answer to that question was, anything is lawful. All things are lawful. We can do anything we want, basically. And Paul says, you must pursue a different, higher goal than that. You must ask different questions than merely what is lawful for you to do in Christ. The questions you must ask, what is helpful? What is helpful for us to do? To the body, to others around us. And then also, what builds up others? So he's, he's wanting to change their perspective and how they decide to go about their lives. Asking different questions. Not merely about themselves, but about others. What is helpful and what builds up? Verse 23, the objection they might would have, well, it's helpful to me, it builds me up. It, uh, it, I enjoy my freedoms. It, it strengthens me. I get a lot of pleasure out of it. But he's, of course, talking about others, not themselves. We see that in verse 24 as he summarizes kind of a, in a broader way uh, the principle for how they ought to live. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And uh, John Calvin here says that um, Paul is bringing, bringing up the fact that we can damage others by our indiscriminate use of things indifferent. So things that aren't in and of themselves sinful, we can still damage others by our careful use of these things. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. So you think about drivers on the road and how... Changing lanes is a matter indifferent, right? They even put on their blinker, let's say. They're not doing anything sinful in the law's eye. They're not doing anything wrong. But what if you are right there beside them and they decide to change lanes at that moment? They are taking something indifferent and then they are turning it into something that would harm you. And so the Corinthians have this same mind about them. They're being careless about the way they use things indifferent. Um, but the summary statement says we, instead we ought to be seeking the benefit of others. That term seeking really speaks, uh, speaking somewhat metaphorically, it speaks to striving after. Striving after that which benefits others. And so there must be really an intentionality 
behind our actions. We don't go about our days just carelessly or thoughtlessly. Rather, we ought to go about them intentionally. How can we benefit our brothers and sisters in Christ and those around us? Look at verses 25 to 30. Paul gives a few case studies, a a few examples of how does this principle apply. So he gives three uh, circumstances, and then he tells them how this principle is at work practically in their life. So look at the first circumstance in verses 25 and 26. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So whatever is sold in the market, what's the answer? What do we do with that? Just eat it. I thought about naming the the, uh, sermon that, the title of the sermon, Just Eat It. You remember the old... Uh, old song by Weird Al Yankovic that kept running through my mind this week. Meat sold in the market, he says to the Corinthians, just eat it. You don't, have to, you don't have to run these things, these questions through your mind about whether or not it's right. There's no need to mull over, over and over and over again, these questions in your mind about its rightfulness. Why? He says, for the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Lord created this. And he has... Proclaim that it is good for us to eat. You don't need to be plagued in your consciences about the meat. So just just eat it. It's just meat. And this raises in our minds that sometimes we can have overactive consciences. We can we can begin to have too many scruples about matters indifferent. Now I'm not talking about Sin, things that are explicitly sinful, right? We should be convicted by those things. They should sear our conscience when we do things that are sinful. But if they are matters indifferent that the Scripture leaves open for liberty, then we ought not to be plagued in our consciences about these things. So in things indifferent, in matters indifferent, we must not be overly scrupulous. Well, why? Why why do I make that statement? Well, I think, for one, there's a tendency toward elevating one's own laws to the level of God's laws. So we begin maybe to have these scruples about matters indifference to the point that we begin to lift them up as laws right, right alongside the laws of God. We begin to exalt these things rather than trusting in God for what He's provided us. And then what we do is we hold everyone to our standard as well. Probably all of us, maybe all of us, went through a stage like this. This is the cage stage of Christianity. I became you know, a Christian when I was about 10. But then, but then in college, there was uh, a sort of recommitment uh, that took place in my life. And, and God was doing a great work. And do you know what happened? I became very zealous, <laughs> put it in a good, good term. And in many ways, very legalistic. And I, held, I wanted to help, hold everyone else to my standard of righteousness. And in some of those things, what I was doing was holding matters indifferent. Matters the scripture doesn't explicitly speak about. And really matters of liberty. And I was saying, you need to do what I have decided is righteous. Rather than trusting God for what he has called righteous. But there's another problem with being overly scrupulous about matters indifferent. And it's one that, uh, that Luther, Martin Luther points to. He seems to suggest that by being overly scrupulous about things indifferent, we can unwittingly provide a foothold 
for Satan to afflict our consciences about things God hasn't even God hasn't even commanded us or prohibited us from doing. And we have he, he attacks us enough as it is. We don't need to give him another option to attack our consciences. And so we ought not to be overly scrupulous about matters indifferent. Paul says, just eat the meat. He goes on in verse 27, and he has the same response for another circumstance, the second circumstance. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. The same phrase is used there. Without running these questions through your mind, just eat the meat. You can note also the freedom that he gives for them to eat with unbelievers. Remember, we, we, uh, the Corinthians were wondering about whether, whether they should asso- associate with certain people. And they concluded they could uh, associate with sinful people in their own midst who claimed to be Christians and were living ungodly lifestyles, but they would disassociate from any unbelievers out in the world. And Paul here is, is saying completely the opposite. You have the freedom to go and eat with unbelievers. And an unbeliever invites you over and puts food before you, just eat it. There's no reason to run these questions through your mind. It's also good manners, right, <laughs> to eat what they put before you. And he says the same response would apply. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. But then there's a second part to, really it's two circumstances, not three. There's a second part to this second circumstance, verses 28 to 30. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So you go to an unbeliever's house and uh, maybe one of your Christian friends who has a weaker conscience uh, says to you, he raises a question about this meat. Wait, is this meat offered to idols? Is this idol meat? It may also be the unbeliever himself who is raising this question. We're not exactly sure who's raising this question about the meat. It could be that he knows Christians have scruples about eating this certain meat. But regardless of who it is that raises this question about the meat, Paul says, don't eat it. The answer is the same. You should not eat it for the sake of the other's conscience, for the sake of, I think, your brother's conscience. What will build him up? What will be helpful to him? Not what you want to do, not what would build you up, not what would gratify your desires, but what would be helpful to him. And Paul says not eating the meat would be helpful to him. Because if you ate the meat, you might lead him to go against his own conscience, which would be wrong, which would be sin. You may cause him to defile his own conscience, and he will feel pressure to eat the meat along with you, to not become awkward, to not look out of place. And so Paul is saying you still have your freedom, you still have your liberty, but for the sake of your brother you can lay it down. And he says, the limitation of the freedom's use is not of its power or authority. It's that the use of it may be regulated in accordance with the rule of love. So you might be confused about what Paul is saying here. Is he saying that you're free to do it, that you have liberty? Or is he saying uh, your, your freedom is limited? Well, in other words, it's not a limitation of freedom if you do it voluntarily for the sake of love you still have that freedom in your own conscience, but you lay it down in love. For Why should you be judged for 
partaking of food with thankfulness. It reminds me of Romans 14 where Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind about matters indifferent. What matters is doing it in the honor of the Lord and for the good of your brothers and sisters. Then look at verses 31 to 33. We have these staccato statements of summary about how we ought to behave in different circumstances. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's the first one. Do everything for the glory of God. And second, give no offense to anyone, to Jews or Greeks, to those in the church. We are to have a mind towards everyone around us. We do have a particular responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to those who are close to us. But we also have a responsibility to give no offense to Jews or Greeks. As Paul said that he desired... He strove to be all things to all people so that by any means he might save some. Paul says, imitate me. Imitate my practice. That's the third summary statement. He seeks to please everyone, not seeking his own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So in this sense, at least, we ought to be people pleasers. Not in the sense that we do things just because others want us to, but that we don't want to bring offense because of something we say or do that would push them away from the gospel. And we see, um, we see how the, the chapters are somewhat, Calvin says, uh, from this it appears how absurdly chapters are divided. So we see sometimes they, the chapters are not divinely inspired. So just make a note of that. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This goes with the preceding section in chapter 10. We are to imitate Paul's example in, the, in such a way as he imitates Christ. So Christ is the ultimate example, the ultimate pattern that we are to follow. So I've walked through the passage, and now let me give you four truths about what to do in circumstances that are indifferent, of matters that are indifferent. And you say, uh, four truths, well, it's already getting close time to close and shop. And well, but, but these, will, these will go pretty quickly. Pizza, <laughs> Pizza that's right. <laughs> Pizza won't be ready for a while. I've got to stall a little bit, so no, I'm just kidding. So four truths about what to do in circumstances concerning matters indifferent. And really, it applies to all of our actions, okay? But, but Paul is giving it in this context of matters indifference. Number one, the guiding principle for our actions must be love. You hear this, brothers and sisters? The guiding principle of our actions must be love. And really, in a way, Paul is anticipating the chapters coming up. You know what's coming up, right? 12, 13, 14. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And he's saying, nothing you do means anything if you do it without love. The, the, the gifts that you have, the skills that you have, if, if you have not love, it's all worthless. And, and why do we forget this so often? Why do, we, why do we give little thought to this so frequently? We're reminded of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts, listen to that, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
Love must be our guiding principle. And that leads us to consider the second truth is love for God is the ultimate guiding principle. Love for God in particular is the ultimate guiding principle of our lives. What does it mean to love God? Well, you're probably familiar with uh, what John Piper says about loving God. He says, to love God is to be satisfied in Him. To be content with who He is for you. And I would also add to that, love is not simply something that takes place in the mind. It is that. It is our affections inwardly, but it's also living for His glory. Living for His honor and His pleasure. Not simply in our minds to love God, but it has to do with our affections, our obedience, and our faith. It has to do with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our whole being, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all that we are devoted in love to God. Jesus says that to love God is to trust Him and to keep His commandments. Obey his word. He says all the law is summed up in this word. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the law of God is a practical application of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. It's not enough to go by just simply what you feel like God would be happy with. right? Because we all make mistakes when we go that route. We are not reliable guides concerning what pleases God. We make all sorts of bad decisions because we feel like this would be a loving thing or we feel like this would glorify God. God has told us what glorifies Him in His Word. And so we must know His Word because in it He tells us what love for Him looks like. And love for God must be our ultimate guiding principle. The third, the third truth is that love for others is the penultimate guiding principle. That means second, right next to it. The next guiding principle of our lives is to love others. Loving God and loving others. This is the second part of the, the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you first ask, what brings glory to God? Second, you ask, what is helpful to others? What is beneficial? What will build others up? It was brought uh, to my attention this last week by another member. And we've been, Jason and I have been thinking about these things, about our gatherings in particular on Sunday, about um, when we arrive and about how we leave. And uh, one member in particular brought it to my mind uh, just about how difficult it can be because it's almost sometimes seems as if we are where we get here at the last moment and then we begin and then we leave immediately after the service is over. And I think this is one of those matters in difference that we should think about because it's not wrong to, to get here right before time. It's not a, uh, an explicit sin to leave right after things are done. And yet if, what if we asked what would be beneficial to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Perhaps after the service, we're we're thinking about where we need to be and where we need to be quickly. We're thinking about, you know, our own needs and our own benefits. But I wanted to exhort you and, and help us to think about this. What would it look like 
for me to think about what would, it, what would be beneficial to my brothers and sisters regarding what time I get here and what time I leave and, and what sorts of things I'm doing in those situations. Matters indifferent. We, we have to think about what will build one another's up. So Paul also is thinking about spiritual gifts uh, in, in the chapters coming up. And sometimes we can approach our spiritual gifts as, and I, I've heard people express this, it's kind of like, I have my gifts and I'm determined to use them. Almost like it's a weapon, like I'm, I'm going to use it whether you like it or not. Well, what, what would it be like if you were building a house and all the plumbing work was done and a plumber comes in and says, well, I'm going to do some plumbing and all of it's done. Well, you'd make a mess of it. You'd waste a lot of time. It wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't build up the house. Instead, you look and see what is needed. You look and, and see those areas, maybe that you have a complaint in. Maybe that you see some deficiencies. You look where the need is and you, you determine to meet that need or to find someone who can meet that need. So your mind is going and you're thinking, what will be helpful? What will build up my brothers and sisters? What, it, what will help build up this house that the Lord is building? We are to consider for others how we can help them, how we can build them up, but also for unbelievers as well. There is a, an implication here that we will have a mind towards unbelievers. What will draw them to the Lord so that they might be saved? What advantage might I give them in becoming closer to the Lord? What can I do that they might be saved? And our final truth about circumstances of matter and matters indifferent is this. Christ is the perfect encapsulation of what it means to be guided by love. From all eternity, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit were in a love relationship with one another, in perfect union with one another. The covenant of redemption sprang from the love that was in God. Love led God to not utterly destroy Adam and Eve for their sin. Love led God to keep a remnant in Noah and his family when he destroyed the world with the flood. Love led Christ to put on flesh and walk among us. Love led him to walk in perfect obedience to his Father. Love led him to heal and teach, and rebuke, and warn. It was love that led Jesus to set his face toward Jerusalem, where he knew he would suffer terribly and die. It was love that led him to offer his body and blood for you, brothers and sisters. It was love which led him to give up his life for sinners as he died on the cross, and forgive us of all of our sins. It's love that will lead him to one day return and take us home. It's love that will lead him to come back and make all things new. See, Christ is the perfect example of what it means to be guided by love. And therefore, we do imitate him. However, in these things, Christ is held forth first, not as an example, but as a propitiation for our sins. Turning away the wrath of God for our salvation for our redemption, and then secondarily as an, an example. Secondarily as something to imitate, something to follow. You will never be saved by imitating your master. 
who are saved by something that cannot be imitated. His perfect death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the dead. And now he calls us to follow him. To imitate him in gratitude for what he has done for us. So let us do this, brothers and sisters, for one another. Living with love for God as our guiding principle and living with one another in mind. How we could help, how we could build up, how we could strengthen one another. Let us pray together.